Um, my name is Mike Sindelar, and I've been gone for a few weeks, and I feel like uh, I'm trying to get back in the saddle this morning. It's good to be here, and uh, thank you again for your prayers during our family's time of Sandy's dad passing away, and you have been a great support to us, so um, we're getting back into life, and it might be a little hard to celebrate Father's Day today. With Anyway, thank you. Thank you. It's good to be here. And I'm looking forward to getting back into God's Word with you this morning. We've been, for the last few months, working our way through the Sermon on the Mount, specifically chapter 5, uh, starting with the Beatitudes and worked into some principles of kingdom living. And uh, I think a little review is in order here before we dive into chapter 6 of the Sermon on the Mount. So when we read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through chapter 7, we need to remember that there are three themes, three major themes running through it. And keeping these themes in mind will help us to understand the message of the teaching that Jesus is giving us. For example, I think one of, if not the primary theme of, of the Sermon on the Mount, and just turn with me to Matthew chapter 5 and, and um, we'll camp here today. One of the major themes, if not the major theme, is the kingdom of God. This teaching of the Sermon on the Mount is early in the ministry of Jesus when he, when he gathered his disciples to himself and started teaching about the kingdom of God. It seems to point to a coming kingdom where God rules and reigns. But exactly what the kingdom of God, what the definition of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is, is a matter of debate. Lots of books have been written about it. The followers of Christ at his time had in, had in mind a political kingdom, uh, some kind of a military power taking over Rome. That was the perception that the Messiah would, would come with. And, and so that was the idea of a kingdom. So when Jesus spoke of a kingdom, he was rocking their world. He was, he was rattling all of their stereotypes and preconceived notions of what was coming. And even at the end of his ministry, they still wondered if it was a political kingdom that was coming. Others say that this kingdom of God is simply a matter of the heart. It's a, it's a spiritual maturity that develops in us, and it really has no external application or implication for the rest of the world around us. It's all having to do with what goes on in here. And sometimes the kingdom is seen as future, a kingdom that is established by God and, and closes out the age of human history. Others say that Jesus taught that the kingdom was present, that the kingdom was among them. And, and Jesus did indeed say the kingdom of God is near, the kingdom of God is coming, the kingdom of God is here. So we'll discuss more of this in chapter 7 as we come to a close at the end of the summer here with the Sermon on the Mount. We'll talk more about this, but the biblical evidence seems clear, and I would say overwhelming. Jesus incarnated the kingdom of heaven and proclaimed it in all that he taught. He came to show it to us, to live it out before us and, and teach us what it looks like and what, what we as citizens look like in it. But Jesus, if we look at the kingdom of heaven, if we look at the way he uses that idea, and that, that term, he often uses it in the future tense. In chapter 6, in the Lord's... In, 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 chapter 6, where we're going, and in the Lord's Prayer in chapter 5, 
he teaches his disciples to pray for the coming of the kingdom, the realization of the kingdom in their lives and their ministry. So the kingdom of heaven is a main theme of the teaching. John the Baptist proclaimed that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. Jesus launched his, mission, his ministry with the same proclamation. And so now in his first major teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, he describes life in the kingdom of God. He mentions it directly no less than eight times in the Sermon on the Mount. Another theme that runs through the Sermon on the Mount is righteousness. And this is a word we use a lot. And I'm always amazed at how we, we're hard-pressed to translate what righteousness actually means and what it is. And, and even, even for those who have been many years in Scripture and, hard, and, and mature in their faith, keeping a succinct definition of righteousness can, can sometimes elude us. And some of the words we can use to define righteousness include upright, uh, it means to be conformed to the law of God. It means virtuous. It means a right relationship with God. It can mean justice in, the sa in that same relationship with God. In other words, righteousness, if I am righteous before God, which I am in Jesus Christ, it's a legal transaction that he does at the cross for me and for you. It's a one-time transaction. I am made righteous. I don't look like it today, but I am and so are you if you're in Christ Jesus. It means that you have been made righteous. You've been put into a right standing with the God of the universe. It means that his righteousness now reflects in you and all that comes with it. It means to align ourselves with his ways and his truth. It means to walk in God's ways. It means to be made right with God and to seek his, and this is a key word, to seek his rightness. Look at um, Matthew chapter 5, verse, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They're both themes in the same verse. To verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And where we're going today, chapter 6, verse 1, this is what we'll be studying today. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Righteousness. And at the end of chapter 6, Jesus says this, and when you recognize this truth, but seek first the kingdom of God and his, say it with me, Righteousness. Uh, let me, let's, we'll back up. To, we'll do that again. Say it with me. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness in all these things will be added unto you. And the third thing, the third theme, the third idea that I think is, is not so explicit, but the idea of the Sermon on the Mount brings, brings, this, brings this, this concept with, and that is it's an interim ethic. An interim ethic. In light of his teaching on the kingdom of God, Jesus introduces the implications and the directions for those seeking to walk with God. If you want to walk with God, this is what it looks like. We anticipate the kingdom of God, but we live here and now. 
We know his future kingdom. But the question for us today as followers of Christ is how do we live today? One of my personal objectives in my ministry as I look at my life and, and my, my role in, in, in God's, God's community, God's kingdom, is to prepare people for the coming of the Lord, for life in his kingdom. And so here it is. It's right here in, in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus leads the way by teaching his disciples how to live today in the kingdom of heaven that is both here and yet to come not fully realized until the end of the age. So Jesus is giving us an interim ethic. I don't want to give the idea that it passes away somehow. It doesn't pass away. What he gives us is eternal. He's not going to change it. But it's how we're to live today. He's teaching us how to be in him, in Christ, how to live out our faith in the context of the world around. It's all in preparation. It's all for growing in faith and maturity for the coming kingdom. Brothers and sisters, it's coming soon. If you look at the flow of the teaching in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches us how to be in chapter 5, in the Beatitudes. In the last part of chapter 5, he teaches us a new way, new principles to guide our hearts. And in chapter 6, he talks about how to live out our faith in a public way. How this kingdom works out in our public is part of our worship and our faith. So as we look at chapter 6 today, we see that he teaches us, I hate to even use the word, but he teaches us how to be religious can we find another word for that? How to be followers of Christ. How to live out our religion before people. How to publicly worship God in a godly way. And so as he does that, as he seeks to drive that point home, he picks out three different topics that are critical in our public worship. One is giving. That's what we're going to talk about today. The next one is prayer. And the third one is, anybody want to take a chance? Did you read ahead? Say what the third one is. Fasting. Thank you. Giving, prayer, and fasting. So let's look at it today with that as a summary, as a background of, of where we've been and, and what we're studying today. Let's look at it. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Read along with me. So Jesus said, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you'll have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they might be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This idea of the Father seeing in secret and rewarding us is, re, is, is a recurring theme as well. I have it underlined. I don't know how many times it is. Four or five times it occurs. 
in the Sermon on the Mount, your Father who sees in secret. So I've entitled this, this next series of, of messages from Matthew chapter 6, Secret Faith. So let's look at it. The art of righteousness. Let's go back. Chapter, chapter 6, verse 1. Verse 1 sets the theme for the entire passage. If we could sum it all up with a question, it would be this. How do I practice my faith before other people? Another question might come. How do I practice my faith so that it's pleasing to God? The word practicing here, beware of practicing your righteousness, means doing. Means doing. Jesus is switching from Matthew 5 and teaching us how to be. And now in chapter 6, he's turning the corner and he's teaching us how to do. How to live this out in public. And the tone is also different. From the blessing of the Beatitudes to the, to the teaching of the last part of five, Jesus, in the encouragement of all of that, in the, in the teaching of how to be, now Jesus turns the corner and he says, beware. Beware. And if, you, if you're reading King James Version, I, think it, I believe it says, if you're, um, it says, take heed. Beware. Take heed. Now, that's a whole different tone from the, from the first part of the Sermon on the Mount. Be careful. The idea of this is to fix your thoughts. Pay attention. Focus your attention. Don't let this get past you. You should be concerned about this. In other words, Jesus is saying, look here. Pay attention. There is a real danger lurking out there that you need to know and you need to avoid. So what's the danger? One ancient writer said it like this. It's the monster that's at work in all of us. And that monster says, we need to make sure everyone sees our righteousness and gives us credit for it. We live for the approval of people. We do our worship. We walk out our obedience. We, we practice generosity. And our, our, future, our, our virtue, our integrity, we do it for the audience of others. I would speculate that the longer we serve the Lord, this is me speculating, the longer we serve the Lord, the bigger this monster of approval gets. Our faith becomes routine. And we, whether it's conscious or unconscious, we settle into living out our faith for the observation and the approval of others. Sorry. By contrast, the warning is that if we don't have an audience of God and God alone, there's no eternal reward for us. All will come to naught. A stern warning from the Lord Jesus. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And so from this launching point in verse 1, he goes into practical applications of giving, prayer, and fasting to show us what it means to live this out. So let's look at the art of generosity. I have called it generosity. The, the real word in Scripture would be charity. Let's read chapter verse 2 again. Thus, when you give to the needy, 
Sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Jesus sets up a comparison, a contrast of the wrong way and the right way to approach charity. In this equation of public acceptance, there are always Pharisees in the background. Jesus is always referencing the religious leaders who have consistently gotten this wrong. And here Jesus calls them hypocrites. One author said that this, this idea of hypocrite is the, is the top of the ladder. It's the worst thing Jesus can call the religious leaders. The word hypocrite, we get our word theater from it. I didn't know that. The Greek word for hypocrite is, we get our word theater. I'm not going to say the word because I don't remember it, but it means to put a mask on. It means to put a face on. It means to act. It means to make a big scene. It means to put on a performance for others. And I'm getting the idea from verse 2, Jesus has a pretty low opinion of having an audience of others. He doesn't approve of this at all. In fact, he says, beware of this. And always in the background, I don't think he's pointing his finger. I don't even know if they were there that day. Maybe they were. Maybe they were listening. I doubt if he pointed his finger, but he probably he wanted to make it very clear, beware of those guys. Beware of their legalism. Beware of their rules. Beware of their ways of doing things because they've missed what God has at the heart of these things. And that's why he has the Sermon on the Mount. Now, to understand all this, we have to go back to uh, the Judaism of that time. In the, in the temple... I understand that there were 13 containers to receive offerings on your way into the temple, and I'm not sure where, but as you move, move towards the, the inner courts of the, of the temple, there were these offering containers along the way. And they were there to receive offerings, not the tithes, but the offerings for charity. They were there to, to help with the upkeep of the temple. They were there to support students of Torah, they were there to provide for the poor. They were there to provide for the community. It was, it was their form of charity. These containers were called charity boxes or pushka or, and I don't know if I'm saying this right, zedaka boxes. It's going to be hard to lock that word in your head, but zedaka is the word we're looking for. These donations weren't part of the tithe, but they were money given to help those less fortunate. So we don't know where the trumpet illustration comes from. It's not inconceivable. It, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't shock us at all to know that the Pharisees, whenever they put their coins in the tzedakah boxes, that they would do all they could to make it clang really hard. Or they would draw attention to themselves and say, look at me, look at me, I'm putting money in the box. So it's not a stretch for us to say that maybe they had somebody blow a trumpet every time they went up to the box, to the Sadaka box. But there's no evidence for that. It, it makes a great story, but there's really no evidence for that. But even without the trumpets, the, the, the shape of the, the opening in the box was said to be shaped like a trumpet. And they were made out of metal, 
And so when you heard the coin, you could hear the coins dropping in the boxes. So it's easy to see how one way or another, these, these religious leaders, Pharisees and others, could easily make a show of it and making sure that their coin was clanging as it goes down, drawing attention to themselves. Their way of practicing generosity was the wrong way. and Jesus despised this display of hypocrisy. It may have led to public applause, but God had no time for it. If you'll allow me this morning, I think there's a rabbit trail that's worth following in this verse. And I will grant to you that it's not the main gist of the verse, of the passage. We'll come back to that. But I think there's a rabbit trail in here that I'd like to follow, and I think you'll find it profitable. It's the idea of charity and the sadaka box, the charity box. I've already explained that these sadaka boxes, the charity boxes, were part of the temple. It was part of the rhythm of going to worship in the temple. Later in history, and for some parts of this, this principle in the Jewish culture, it's much later in, the, in, in, the, in life. And we're talking in the, in the 1900s even. Some of the changes were made as to how this operates. But somewhere along the line, these boxes became an integral part of Jewish life. They started putting them in homes. They started putting them right on the kitchen table. And it, it became a practice. It became a tradition. It became a, 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 I don't know how far it went as a mitzvah, a principle laid out in Jewish law. But it became part of everything. And so if you come to the kitchen table, before you have a meal, you would put a coin in for charity, for tzedakah. And when you're done having a meal, you put another coin in, and everyone in the family would put a coin in. When you come to your prayers, you would put a coin in before. If you come to, to studying Torah, the Old Testament Scripture, if you came to studying that, you would put a coin in the charity box, tzedakah. It became a part of the rhythm of life. It's seen as a commandment, a command to care for the poor. But it's also seen as a way to teach the children, the next generations, about giving and money. I think we have some quotes up here. If you go to the next slide, please. This is from 2 Kings 12, verses 9 and 10. This is a, this is a picture of the Sadaka box. By the, way, by the way, I understand in Hebrew the word tzedakah means justice or, say it with me, righteousness. Isn't that amazing? Charity is equated with justice and righteousness. So I'm not going to read the passage, but 2 Kings 12, 9 and 10 gives us an illustration of where the charity boxes came from. If, if you could move on, please, to the next slide. Okay, I thought there was another slide or two in there. We'll keep going. We'll find them sooner or later. They're in there someplace. So I thought it, it, I think to unpack this idea a little bit, there's some fun facts regarding Zadaka boxes, charity boxes, that we can learn from. First of all, in the Jewish mindset, wealth is a gift from God. I don't think that's any surprise from us. We understand that as well. That's not a revelation. The wealth is a gift from God. 
for, for Jewish tradition and for Jewish teaching, whether, whether wealth is inherited or whether it's earned, it doesn't matter where it comes from. It all comes from God. We're just stewards. There's no such thing in the Jewish tradition. Listen to this. There's no such thing in the Jewish tradition as a righteous possession. If a Jew is following the tradition, they would never ever say, I deserve this. I earned it. If they understood tzedakah, they would say, this is a gift from God. This is a stewardship from God. There's a story of a, a, in the tradition about a, a, a banker. Rabbi, I'm not sure if it's a banker. Hang on, hang on with you. The word banker will come back into it. Rabbi, a rabbi came to a wealthy man and asked for his support in his work of Torah study. The wealthy man decided, well, he took it under consideration and he decided, well, I'm not going to give to the rabbi at this time for his study of Torah. I'm not going to support him. I'll, maybe I'll do it later. But as time went on, the wealthy man lost everything. And sometime later, after he had lost everything, he came back to the rabbi and said, I made a mistake by not giving to you when you asked me. And now God is punishing me. The rabbi replied, no, he's not punishing you. You see, when you were born, God determined to give you wealth to distribute it to those who he would lead you to. God gave you wealth. He appointed you for wealth so that you could support others and do his work. And so when you didn't do it, when you didn't give to others, God simply took your portion away and he gave it to somebody else who would obey him. And so in this tradition of tzedakah and understanding that everything comes from God, they call, these, they call people with resources bankers because God has entrusted them with wealth for his purposes. Isn't that amazing? Another fun fact. The gift of wealth comes with the command to support those around you. We call it charity. They call it justice or righteousness. Supporting the poor is a matter of walking with God in his ways. Is there another slide following this? There you go. This, every, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Could you go again to the next slide? Again. Genesis 18, for I have chosen him that he may command his, this is Abraham, he's referring to Abraham, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. That's tzedakah. So that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Okay, go to the next slide. Deuteronomy 15, you shall give to him freely and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. 
I have just verses 10 and 11 up there, but it actually goes back to verse 7 if you want to read the rest of that passage. The gift of wealth comes with the command to support those around you. It's not just charity to them. It's part of faith. It's part of walking with God in his ways. Number three, fun fact for us, charity is additional. It's above and beyond our giving. We, we, um, we participate in charity if we've already taken care of our other obligations. For them, it's part of the obligation. It's part of the way they think about money and wealth and resources. Some rabbis, and this is where we depart, but some rabbis have even go so, gone so far as to say that tzedakah is actually part of salvation. Okay, we wouldn't, we wouldn't go with that. But that's how deeply ingrained this idea of tzedakah is. Number four, tzedakah is an opportunity to share in God's creation. In other words, tzedakah means that I can participate with bringing justice and righteousness to the rest of the world. And so in that sense, they call it being part of God's creation. My, my money, my wealth, my resources, and it goes beyond money. It goes, it's everything that God has given to me. Time, talent, treasure. Everything I have is a gift for the purpose of, of partnering with God in his creation to develop his kingdom, to bring about his kingdom, and to bring justice and righteousness to the world. Number five, Sadaka is not limited to money. It includes any act of generosity, anything that builds up, anything that encourages anything that reaches out to others. It includes food, it includes helps, it includes mercy, etc. So the practice of charity boxes or tzedakah boxes has meant that the people of Israel are known for their charitable giving. It's woven into their faith. I'll give you this, and I didn't, I didn't go into these details, but, but they have indeed distorted it along the way as as the rabbis often do. But they are following the essential biblical command to provide for the poor. See, the reason I wanted to take this rabbit trail here, uh, when, the, when, the, when the religious leader goes into the temple and he puts his money in the box and why we're taking this time to think about the box and all that goes behind it, is because it makes me think about my own views of my possessions and my wealth. Do I consider my money and my possessions rightfully mine or are they a gift from God? When I look at this or when I look at that and when I, when I hold on to this tightly, do I say, you know, I deserve this and I worked hard for this and, and I'm not going to let it go. I'm not going to sell it. I'm not going to give it away to somebody who needs it because it's mine. Zadaka says it belongs to God and we ask God where we should go, what we should do with our resources stewardship. How do, I, how do I look at my possessions? What is my responsibility with money as I work out my faith? In 2016, Barna Research, together with Thrive and Financial, did a survey. 
they did a survey of pastors and Christians on their attitudes about wealth and giving. They broke their research out into two categories, givers and keepers. All this is on the sermon study notes on the back table back there. I have this graph up there. I, have, uh, I also have the eight levels of Sadaka, eight priorities in charitable giving. That's on the back of the sermon study notes back there. So be sure and grab that. It's interesting reading and interesting thought. But Barner Research came up with this. As they studied pastors and Christians, this is what they came up with. They were givers and they were keepers. On the giver's side, there were those who wanted to leave a legacy for others. They're concerned about the future. and They wanted to make sure they were investing in others. They wanted to serve God with their money. They wanted to give charitably. That was a goal of theirs. They wanted to be able to give away. And they wanted to provide for their family. On the other hand, you have the keepers. And their goal is to be debt-free. There's nothing wrong with being debt-free, right? That's a goal for all of us. But their goal is to be content. And their goal is to support the lifestyle I want. And I think, well, I look out at the world and I say, well, of course. But that's not the world. That's the Christian community. That's those of us who hold to God's word, those of us who say we walk with Jesus Christ, and yet we're divided into two camps, the keepers and the givers. And I wonder, as I look at, look at this passage and the, and the religious leader who wants to make sure that his, his offering is known, I wonder, I wonder which of those represents the Pharisee in Jesus' teaching. Which of those would draw attention to their offering? Which of those would want to make sure that everybody knows this is what I'm doing? And I'm, I'm going to speculate that on the keeper's side, there's no discussion of tithing or giving a percentage back to God or smallest gifts constitute giving when in fact God calls us to a greater measure. That's why I wanted to take this rabbit trail because it's, it's very convicting to me. So when I consider the Jewish tradition of the tzedakah box, I'm thinking it's not a bad idea. Maybe every kitchen table should have one. It makes me wonder, again, how are we training up our children to be givers rather than keepers? How are we training up our children to see their money, their resources, everything that they have as a gift or a stewardship from God? I find it interesting in this passage, Jesus didn't correct their understanding of charity or generosity. He didn't go back to the Old Testament command and say, therefore I say to you, he didn't correct it at all. The command to look out for the poor, for the soldier and the widows among us, that's, that's Old Testament command, and Jesus never threw it over. It's still there. He upheld it. What he warns against is the audience that we seek in our generosity. Is it, is it the applause of people? And by the way, he says, you know, if, you want, if you're seeking the applause of people, that's it. And if you go back into the original languages, it, it means to receive a receipt. Exchange is finished. You can sign the receipt. Your, your, your performance has been seen and observed and we'll give you a receipt for it. It's all done. And the receipt is your reward. It lasts for a moment and then it's gone and then you're off wondering how you can impress people again. 
Or are we working for an audience of one, audience of God himself, the affirmation of God himself with our giving? But Jesus turns it around in verse 3, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So here's the simple answer. Here's the, the contrast here. Don't make a big show out of it. I, I think it's interesting because back in Matthew 5, he says, put your light on a, what do you say? On a stand? So that you don't put a bushel basket over your light so that the whole world can see? So in Matthew chapter 5, he says, let your light shine. Let the whole world see. And now he says, no, secret faith. It's all about motive. It's all about where does the glory go? And so he gives the simple answer, the simple contrast to the drawing attention to yourself and seeking the applause of people is don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Right? Got, that's it. That's the answer. So we can all go home now. The problem is nobody seems to really know what, where he got that expression from and what he was trying to say exactly. But we do know that he goes on to say that our, our giving should be done in secret. So don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Do your giving in secret. Don't do it with pomp and circumstance and drawing attention to yourself. So when we lived in Romania, we learned the uh, art of counting large sums of money. My first car in Romania was paid for in cash. And I took a, literally took a duffel bag full of cash. And it all has to be counted. Some of the exchange houses had counting machines that they would do it with, but others, they had this, they had this down. And um, I used to have it down. I don't have it down anymore. But you've got to imagine that this pile is this thick with Romanian currency. So, and you have to do the thumb too, okay? And, and, and then you just go like that. I can't do it as fast as they can. If you go to an exchange house, they can, they can just peel that off and they can count that money just, just like that. But you have to do it with your left hand and your right hand. It doesn't work otherwise. The, the problem with the left hand and the right hand is that sometimes you can, be, you can be handling your money and you can be giving to charity with your right hand and you can be taking with your left hand. So there's, there's, there can be dishonest motives floating around back there. That might be part of what Jesus is getting at as well. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Integrity and joy comes with humble, secret giving. One author is quoted as saying, if the left hand doesn't know what the right hand does, neither does the soul which animates both, neither is the soul which animates both conscious of it. Or as Chrysostom said, Jesus is calling us to complete modesty, secret and noiseless giving. You see, that's where faith comes in. I don't need to care what others think. I don't need to seek their approval or their applause. I don't even need to take care that my giving is known to others. I thought about whipping out that handful of bills and, and having Dan, one of our ushers, come forward and, and counting it out and giving it to him for my offering today in front of all of you. 
That's what the Pharisee did. But I thought that would leave a pretty bad taste in your mouth, probably. But that's what the Pharisee did. I don't need to take care that everybody knows what, what I'm doing. You see, Jesus said it clearly. God sees in secret. He knows what I do and what I don't do. And I, and I don't have to worry about the applause of other people and the, and, the, and the approval of other people because my God in heaven sees it. And, and listen to this. Sometimes when we get involved in this kind of giving, we wonder, is anything going to come back to me? There's that, this, you see, the monster is there. But I can rest in that in my faith and knowing that God sees it. And if God cares to, God says he will reward us. Dr. Jeff from Israel Today Ministries, I, I receive emails from him regularly. He gave this illustration this week in his, in his weekly email. Today at the supermarket, I had a lovely conversation with an elderly woman driving one of those electric carts. She looked at some watermelon that I was about to purchase, and she said, oh, I love watermelon, but I can't afford that price. Well, we went our separate ways. While I was standing in line to check out, the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart about buying this woman a watermelon. I checked out. I put my cart off to the side, and I picked up a watermelon. I found the elderly woman. I put the melon in her cart, and I gave her the money to pay for it. You see, if, if you look, and I've got it on the sermon study notes, if you look at the eight levels of charitable giving by Maimonides, uh, ancient Jewish scholar and rabbi, one of the most important features of that is you always need to upbuild the other person. Never just give a gift that discredits them or disgraces them. And that's what he did here. He gave her the money to pay for it, to give her honor, honor and respect. She was speechless and in tears. She said, why? I said, Mama, this is my gift to you. She said, it's too much. And I responded, share it with others. And sobbing, she cried, thank you. I didn't do this for show or to receive attention. Nevertheless, the employees of the store saw this act of kindness, and they smiled, and some were in tears. It made me feel good that they were blessed by that transaction as well. That's secret giving. And the illustrations could go on. I think of our own bunk bed ministry. I think of the people who are working in the Love, Inc. ministry and taking phone calls every day. That's Sadaka. Let me close with this. Jesus said, when you give a banquet... Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. And the Apostle John said it this way, If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Amen. Lord Jesus this is convicting material to us. And it challenges us, and that's exactly what you were teaching. That's what you were trying to say to us, I believe. You're challenging us to examine our motives and to continually align ourselves with your truth, with your grace, with your ways. And so, Lord, may you find us to be a generous people. May you find generosity and charity woven into our faith 
not as a means of salvation. You and you alone provide for our salvation. Lord Jesus, find us with eyes wide open to see the world around us, even in our own family, our neighborhoods, our church, our community. Lord, have us open our eyes to see what you're doing in the world around us. May we listen to the prompting of your Holy Spirit to go and to bless. Find us faithful. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of his Spirit. Amen. Amen. On your way rejoicing.